Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. Let's start tonight with a story that was all over scientific websites recently. It's not the most important of stories, but it caught the eyes of many a science reporter because it involves gold, one of the elements we prize above most others. Gold is actually quite useful in the modern world, beyond its traditional use as currency and jewelry. It's found in most, if not all, modern electronic devices. Of course, gold has a less precious cousin, pyrite, or fool's gold. Well, it turns out that pyrite can contain actual gold. An Australian Chinese research team examined a piece of pyrite and found gold inclusions. But these inclusions are extremely small. So don't think that you can go out into the backyard and find some pyrite and become rich anytime soon, unfortunately. But it is still exciting because even though you or I can't potentially do it, it might have uh, uses, as we'll find out in a second. Now, the team actually needed to use an atom to use atom probe tomography in order to find the gold. And so this process uses electrical pulses to to actually uh, probe the atoms themselves in order to be able to figure out what is in the substance. Previously, gold extractors have been able to find gold in pyrite either as nanoparticles or as a pyrite gold alloy, but what we have discovered is that gold can also be hosted in nanoscale crystal defects, representing a new kind of invisible gold, said Dennis Fugaros, a geologist at Curtin University in Australia and lead author of the new paper published in the journal Geology. Now, the block of pyrite that they used was found in Jiangnan, China, and was formed where the Yangtze and Cathayasia tectonic plates collided around a billion years ago. And so, during its formation, the pyrite developed imperfections in its crystalline structure called dislocations. And so these extremely tiny defects trapped gold within the larger pyrite crystal, which is a compound of iron and sulfur. So it's an iron sulfide. The more deformed the crystal is, the more gold there is locked up in defects, Fugaros said in a statement. The gold is hosted in nanoscale defects called dislocations, a hundred thousand times smaller than the width of a human hair. So a special technique called atom probe tomography is needed to observe it. And so previous research had suspected that the pyrite and gold would have formed separately and later were combined. 
but this sample suggests that the two substances can crystallize at the same time. Fukuros notes that there are ways that the gold could be released from the pyrite, which actually might be more energy efficient than the typical means of gold extraction, which is reactor-based oxidation or separating the gold from slag via the smelting of ore. Um, and that's sort of the more traditional version that you think of when you think of um, sort of mining gold, is that you have this gold and slag and you smelt it and then you're able to pull the gold out of basically uh, the other things that are around it. And of course, these forms of extraction are energy heavy. And so again, it wouldn't be worth it for an individual to try it. But if it was processed on an industrial scale, it might actually be a boon to gold production. The team found they could remove the nanothreads of gold with a technique called selective leaching. This involves dousing the pyrite in a fluid which dissolves gold and allows it to flow out of the pyrite. The tiny nooks actually act as channels which help dissolve out the gold. The discovery rate of new gold deposits is in decline worldwide, with the quality of ore degrading, parallel to the value of precious metals increasing, said Fugaros. And so it seems that with gold running out, we may have found a new solution, which is, again, a big thing because, as we know, gold is actually very important, not only for things like currency, but it really is important for basically running the world um, in the sense that it is pretty much in all electronics. Um, so your cell phone has gold in it. And actually, that's one of the other places where gold is uh, able to be kind of quote unquote found is that you can actually, uh, there are actually some places that take um, e-waste, uh, electronic waste, and they are able to pull those uh, precious metals, the uh, gold, and the other, um, the rare earth metals and things like that. Um, there are some processes that can actually pull that back out of old electronics in order to use them in new electronics. But again, that's pretty labor intensive. Um, because you're only extracting a tiny bit of gold out of um, an entire cell phone that has a whole bunch of other components to it. And so um, it seems like, you know, it might be great that we can turn to fool's gold for a helping hand. Okay, we're going to shift gears now and talk about sort of another kind of uh, fool's gold. Not really, but uh, I am sort of stretching the metaphor here. <laughs> but uh, we're going to be talking about the Cern Abyss Giant. And so this is a 180-foot-tall figure of a club-wielding wielding naked man carved into the chalk of a hilltop in Dorset, England. He's been nicknamed the Rude Man because he is depicted with a large erect phallus. 
Now, the origins of the geoglyph have been debated for decades, with many thinking that the figure was most likely post-medieval, with some believing, though, that the figure was actually prehistoric. It has that kind of uh, prehistoric man uh, look to it, especially with the large club uh, that it's wielding. And so some researchers thought it might date back to the Iron Age as a fertility symbol. Personally, I always kind of subscribe to the post-medieval theory. It just seemed like it's an oddity. Um, It doesn't seem like it really makes sense as a, um, as something from uh, prehistory. It's just, it looks too good to be from that time period. Uh, in some weird ways. And it turns out that pretty much everyone was wrong. (laughs) And so a new sediment analysis has narrowed the likely date of the figure's first appearance and put it in the late Saxon period. And this is an interesting date, uh, as no other figures of this sort are thought to have originated in this time period. This is not what we've what was expected, said geoarchaeologist Mike Allen, who has been working with the National Trust on the ongoing project to learn more about the Cern Abyss giant. Many archaeologists and, hyster- and historians thought he was prehistoric or post-medieval, but not medieval. Everyone was wrong, and that makes these results even more exciting. And so in the 1990s, archaeologists dated the 360-foot-long Uffington White Horse in Oxfordshire to between 1380 and 550 BCE, and the Long Man of Wilmington in East Sussex, on the other hand, dates to the 16th century. So again, sort of one on either side of uh, medieval times, though the Uffington White Horse kind of pulls into medieval times. But I think a lot of people think that it was done closer to that 550 BCE uh, time period. Archaeologists have wanted to pigeonhole chalk figures into the same period, said Allen. But carving these figures was not a particular phase. They're all individual figures with local significance, each telling us something about that time and place. And so the giant was formed by cutting trenches two feet deep into the steep hillside and filling in the resulting depressions with crushed chalk. And so there's actually an Iron Age earthwork known as the Trendle atop the giant's hill, but that seems unconnected to the figure at this point. Interestingly, the first mention of the giant is in a 1694 Warden's account from St. Mary's Church in Cern Abbas, noting the cost of three shillings to repair, quote, ye giant. And there is a reference to the giant in a 1734 letter by the then Bishop of Bristol and a 1738 letter by antiquarian Francis Wise. The first survey to mention the giant was in 1763 and included measurements and a drawing. However, there is no mention of the giant in the 1540s survey of the Abbey's lands, nor in a 1617 survey conducted by John Norden, an English cartographer. 
Cern Abbey was found in 987 CE, which deepens the mystery. Some have suggested that it might have been created to help convert local inhabitants from worshipping the early Anglo-Saxon god Hyle or Heleth, but National Trust senior archaeologist Martin Patsworth is unconvinced of this idea. Why would a rich and famous abbey just a few yards away commission or sanction a naked man carved in chalk on a hillside? He said, A popular theory was that the figure was carved in the 17th century as a parody of Oliver Cromwell, who some mockingly called England's Hercules. And um, there's actually been some, some suggestion that the figure might have been of Hercules. Uh, there's some uh, idea that there might have once been a cloak on the figure, which is something that is associated with Hercules. Um, but Gordon Bishop, chair of the CERN Historical Society, said, These results are intriguing as well as surprising. What I am personally pleased about is that the results appear to have put an end to the theory that he was created in the 17th century as an insult to Oliver Cromwell. I thought that rather demeaned the giant. <laughs> in fact, it seems highly likely that he had a religious significance, albeit a pagan one. There's obviously a lot of research for us to do over the next few years. And so one thing that is actually known is that there was a 2020 LIDAR scan, and that tells us that the phallus was definitely added at a later date, perhaps in the Cromwell era. Hackworth believes it's possible that the figure was cut initially and then forgotten, only to have been rediscovered and rechopped at a later date, which would explain the findings. I wonder whether he was created very early on, perhaps in the late Saxon period, but then became grassed over and was forgotten, Hapsworth said. But at some stage in low light, in low sunlight, people saw that figure on the hill and decided to recut him again. That would explain why he doesn't appear in the Abbey records or in Tudor surveys. surveys. And so the dating used optically stimulated luminescence, which is a really cool new technology, which allows you to know when the rocks last were exposed to sunlight. And also there is evidence from snail shells, uh, microscopic snail shells from a variety that was introduced to the area during medieval times. The deepest samples from the giant's elbows and feet indicated the figure was most likely made sometime between 700 and 1100 CE. Others show a date of around 1560. So again, it kind of points to the fact that there might have been a couple of different times in which the figure was exposed and then chalked out. Um, and so this information gives the researchers both more knowledge and more questions. Future research could tell us even more about how he changed over time and whether our theory about his lost years is true, said Hapsworth. When we began the work, some people wanted the giant's age to remain a mystery, but archaeologists want to use science to seek answers. We have nudged our understanding a little closer to the truth, but he still retains many of his secrets. 
he still does have an air of mystery. So I think everyone's happy. And so I think that's really important to talk about. Um, I get the idea that sometimes not knowing is fun, but I have always subscribed to the idea that knowing the truth is better than having some kind of interesting story. And so I think that it's really important for us to be cognizant of the idea that we should be focusing on what is really there and that what is really there is really interesting. And so, you know, to have this figure that was carved at a time when nobody thought people would have been doing this, um, you know, the Saxon era is not thought of as a time when people would be taking the time to you know, create a giant geoglyph. And yet that's what the science suggests. And so that absolutely opens up a host of questions as to why that is and as to who did it and, you know, what they rep were representing themselves. Um, I think it's really, really fascinating. And I think it does no... Uh, disservice to the figure itself and to its lore to know uh, what's actually going on with it. I think that that's really uh, cool. And I think it's really interesting, again, to find out that all three of those giant uh, geoglyphs found in England all have very distinctively different uh, time periods that they were probably carved in. Um, I think that just makes it far more interesting. And I'm always a little bit sad when people are like, oh, I don't really want to know. Um, because knowing is always better than not knowing, in my opinion. Like, I, I always want to know what the real truth is. And um, I just don't understand the idea that you would rather not know. Um, and there's so much because there's so much we don't know and there's so much we'll never know about that there's plenty of places to still fill in with mystery and awe. Um, and I, again, am always thinking that the real science, the real answers, the real knowledge is so awe-inspiring and so interesting. Um, and so, yeah, I am very much, uh, happy to know now that they have an actual age for this figure because I've wanted to know for ages. I've known about this for years and I was always wondering, you know, how do you figure that out? Because it's not a process that involves something that is easily dated. And so, um, you know, I thought it was really cool that they were using those uh, shells uh, that were only introduced in the medieval era, era, and they were able to use this, um, you know, new type of um, of uh, measurement where they can tell when the last time sunlight hit rocks, because rocks are really hard to date unless they're in a geological um, strata, and so you know if you pull a rock out and you pull it out of its geologic strata, and then you put it somewhere on the land, there's no way to tell at that point when that rock was created in 
an easy way. And so to be able to develop a way in which you can turn that rock over and be able to show when the other side of that rock last saw sunlight, that to me is mind-blowing. I think that that is such a cool thing. And I am totally in love with the idea of that science of being able to really date things that until now we just didn't have the ability to date. And so we might find other things are from time periods that we didn't necessarily think they were from. And so, yeah, I think that's very cool. Um, and so, yeah, let's talk about another kind of mark in the land. Researchers have found traces of enormous ripples engraved by the tsunami that occurred after the impact of the Chicxulub asteroid on the Yucatan Peninsula, in sediments 5,000 feet below what is now central Louisiana. The water was so deep that once the tsunami had quit, regular storm waves couldn't disturb what was down there, University of Louisiana geoscientist Gary Kinsland told Science News. The imprint of the tsunami was coated with a fine layer of air, of airfall debris, which had been chemically linked to the crater in the Gulf of Mexico. They were eventually preserved beneath deep water shale during the Paleocene Epoch. Kinsland and his colleagues found them by analyzing seismic imaging data from the area provided by a fossil fuel company. They found that the imprinted ripple crests form a straight line back to the Chicxulub crater, and that they are oriented in such a way as to be unmistakably from the impact. These mega-ripple features have average wavelengths of 600 meters, or 1,968.5 feet, uh, just over a third of a mile, and an average wave height of 16 meters, or 52 feet, making them the largest ripples documented on Earth, the team wrote in their paper. Of course, they only used meters. I've uh, added the feet and miles since uh, Americans still insist on not using the metric system. <laughs> and so, yeah. Anyways, previous modeling had suggested its waves would have reached 1,500 meters, or nearly a mile, after the mega-earthquake caused by the collision. And so the earthquake would have actually registered more than 11 on the Richter scale. This would have been very huge. Tsunami continued for hours to days as they reflected multiple times within the Gulf of Mexico while diminishing in amplitude, the team wrote. And while these waves were devastating and would have immediately killed millions of plants and animals, it was actually atmospheric changes that caused climate disruptions, which researchers believe led to the mass extinction of 75% of all species living at the time, including all of the remaining non-avian dinosaurs. So basically, uh, it was kind of a nuclear winter, as they call it, uh, would have happened immediately afterwards. Uh, there was also a huge amount of wildfires that were set off by the impact, which would have also put a ton of particulates into the air. And so the um, 
the climate just got completely messed up and pretty much everything that uh, was living at the time, especially large animals, no longer could get the food that they needed. So herbivores couldn't get um, plants because all the plants had either died from uh, cold or from being burned. And then, of course, when the herbivores die, the carnivores die. And just all of these chain reactions of uh, ecosystems that just collapsed. And so just a giant mass extinction. Um, but there is some suggestion that even if the asteroid hadn't hit, dinosaurs were apparently already in serious decline and would probably not have survived too much longer into the future. Um, and we're going to talk about that uh, in a moment after we take a break for some PSAs and some show promos. And so I will be back in just a minute. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Has anyone ever asked you, don't you have enough records? Adventure Rocket Ship is new and old. Indie pop, psych pop, post-punk, shoegaze, lots of chiming, jangly guitars and catchy melodies from both artists you know and obscure 7-inch singles from around the world. Adventure Rocket Ship, Tuesday nights, 9 to 11 p.m. on Valley Free Radio. Alcohol poisoning is caused by binge drinking large quantities of alcohol in a short period of time. Very high levels of alcohol in the body can shut down critical areas of the brain that control breathing, heart rate, and body temperature, resulting in death. Alcohol poisoning deaths affect people of all ages, but are most common among middle-aged adults. In the United States, an average of six people die every day from alcohol poisoning. Most of the deaths are among men. States and communities can support proven programs and policies to prevent binge drinking. Healthcare providers can screen all adult patients for binge drinking and counsel those who do to drink less. Don't binge drink. If you choose to drink, do so in moderation. Up to one drink a day for women or two drinks a day for men. To learn more, visit cdc.gov slash vital signs. Hey everyone, DJ Man of Nowhere here. Tune in to our show Arts Electronica, dedicated to downtempo, ambient, electronic and house music, but also techno and trance, with a hint of progressive and deep house, dubstep and experimental. We love all the music wizards here that bring to life their poetry throughout their sound spaces, soundscapes and sound sculptures. Art Electronica goes live on Saturdays at midnight to 2 a.m. Sunday morning. Check us out. When you get home at night and switch on the lights, do you feel good about the source of your electricity? Did you know that you can choose to power your home with 100% local, clean electricity? You have the power to say no to the standard mix of polluters like natural gas, coal, and oil. 
Make the switch to clean electricity produced right here in New England. It's easy. Sign up for New England Wind or New England Green Start without any contracts or commitments. Just go to www.massenergy.org forward slash CET. Thanks for asking, but I'd rather not send you nude pictures. I'm camera shy. I already said no. Under my clothes, I'm a robot. My webcam is broken. I'm worried they'll get passed around school. I have a rash. I have nudophobia. I have lizard skin. I'm a vampire, so I don't show up in pictures anyways. Your badgering has really killed the mood. When someone is pressuring you to do something you don't want to, how many ways can you say no before they get the message? Let us know at that'snotcool.com. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Sure, humans can be a little weird at times, but take it from me, I'm a dog. And a person is about the best thing that can happen to a shelter pet. So if you want to learn how you can be that person, get down to your local pet shelter or visit the shelterpetproject.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. I Heart J-Rock with DJ Sakura is your weekly two-hour show devoted to rock music from Japan. Join me on Saturday nights, 10 p.m. to midnight. I'll be playing the very best in the newest J-Rock, J-Pop, J-Metal, VK, you name it, I'll play it as long as it's from Japan. Thank you. Great weather means it's time for kids to go out and play. But kids aren't the only ones outdoors. Ticks that spread Lyme disease and other infections are also active in the spring and summer. CDC reminds you and your children to wear insect repellent, bathe or shower as soon as possible after coming indoors, and check for ticks daily. If you've been bitten by a tick and developed fever, rash, or fatigue, seek medical care. To learn more, visit www.cdc.gov Lyme. And we are back. And as I said, we are going to talk about whether or not the dinosaurs would have survived even if the uh, Chicxulub impact hadn't taken place. Um, And so new research suggests that the extinction of dinosaur species were outstripping the emergence of new species. Researchers looked at the evolutionary trend of six major dinosaur groups and found that all of them, herbivores and carnivores alike, were in decline for around 10 million years before the eventual mass extinction at the end of the Cretaceous 66 million years ago. We find that the diversity of dinosaurs declined from 76 million years ago, study lead researcher Fabian Condamine, a research scientist at the French National Center for Scientific Research, or the CNRS, and the Institute of Evolutionary Science of Montpelier in France, um, said, (laughs) To be clear, not everyone is convinced, given the sparseness of the fossil record for these animals. I have reservations about how much stock to put in these findings, especially for a group like dinosaurs, whose fossil record is rather limited compared to, say, North American mammals or marine invertebrates, said David Carnet, a doctoral candidate in the Department of the Geophysical Sciences at the University of Chicago. While not involved in this study, Carnet has done similar research. And so the model the team used is meant to limit this issue, but it can't tell us 
definitively what might have happened had the asteroid not struck. After all, dinosaurs were one of the most successful clades of animals to ever exist, having lived on the Earth for 170 million years. So um, again, I think the famous, um, the famous comparison, and I should have looked it up, but I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't, but it's like uh, Tyrannosaurus rexes are closer to us than they are to like Brontosauruses. I think that's it. Um, and so if you think about that, that's mind blowing, uh, because they died off 65 million years ago. Um, and so yeah, uh, modern humans, hu uh, what we consider to be Homo sapiens have been on the planet for a mere 300,000 years. Uh, we haven't even made it to 1 million and the dinosaurs made it to 170 million years. And so that's a long time. <laughs> um, that's kind of a time scale that we can't really even conceive of. Um, humans are bad at big numbers. Uh, it's... A big problem, which we're not going to talk about tonight. Uh, maybe another night we'll talk about uh, the problem with being able to parse large numbers. Uh, Condamine and his colleagues gathered a list of more than 1,600 dinosaur fossils from 247 late Cretaceous dinosaur species from six families. Ankylosaurs, herbivorous armored dinosaurs, and my personal favorite family of dinosaurs. Thank you very much. Um, ceratopsians, or horned dinosaurs like Triceratops. Uh, hadrosaurs, the duck-billed dinosaurs, as well as the carnivorous tyrannosaurs. Uh, Trudontids, which are bird-like manoreptorans, and dromedaeosaurs, which are bird-like dinosaurs. And so the researchers mapped the fossil occurrences in order to gauge the approximate geologic age of the appearance and disappearance of each species from these six families. But of course, as we know, the vast majority of animals that have lived and died on the planet did not leave behind fossil remains. So the team attempted to account for this lack of data. These models allow us to estimate the quote-unquote true ages of appearance and extinction of each species, and by doing this for all species, we can then deduce diversity curves from their origin to their extinction, Codamine said. And so the models suggest that all of the families were in decline during the last 40 million years of the dinosaur era, though some much more than others and for much longer periods. Herbivore diversity declined sharply, especially among the Ankylosaurs and Ceratopsians in the last 10 million years before the impact, while Truodontids showed a very minor decline in the last 5 million years of the period. Another interesting trend was that as new duck-billed dinosaur species evolved, the extinction rates for both Ankylosaurs and Ceratopsians increased suggesting that the hadrosaurs might actually have been outcompeting them. And so they might have actually been fitter. And so that would have led to them being able to move into more uh, and 
to more diverse niches and basically pushing the Ankylosaurs and Ceratopsians out. And so, in fact, hadrosaur diversity declined less sharply than other families of herbivores during this same period. Now, a big factor in the decline is almost certainly climate cooling. And so, apparently, even before the uh, Chicxulub impact, at the end of the Cretaceous, there was a huge 12.6 degree Fahrenheit drop in temperature in the North Atlantic. And so this cooling climate may have caused the herbivores to begin to decline, which would have had a domino effect on carnivores, who of course counted on them as food sources. Herbivores are keystone species in ecosystems, and their disappearance leads to cascade extinctions, um, the researcher said. And so it might also have been uh, other thoughts. Other, other reasons, including the fact that dinosaur sex may have been partially influenced by temperature, as it is in today's modern-day crocodilians and turtles. If true, sex-switching of embryos could have contributed to diversity loss with a cooling global climate at the end of the Cretaceous, the researchers wrote in the study. And dinosaurs were most likely sensitive to temperature changes in the environment. This cooling is directly involved in the increase of the extinction of dinosaurs 10 million years before the fall of the asteroid, Condamine said. Indeed, dinosaurs were mesothermic, halfway between warm and cold-blooded, organisms, and therefore depended largely on the temperature of their environment for their activity. Now, he does, however, echo the concerns of some of his fellow scientists who view the conclusions as less than solid, noting that... We must remain cautious about the conclusions for several reasons. For instance, they didn't study all species of dinosaurs, so some may not have been in decline. In addition, new fossils could change the landscape of the data. The new study is a valuable contribution, but I don't think we've heard the last word on the subject yet, um, Kearney said. He observes that it's hard to say for sure whether net diversification dropped because of increased extinction, decreased speciation, or both. He also notes that a sudden extinction might appear as a time-smeared, uh, might appear time-smeared and gradual. The better the fossil record gets, the less serious this problem becomes, but it's unclear if the dinosaur fossil record, even at its best, is good enough to avoid this issue entirely. The fact that the decline inferred by the new study is so close in time to the final extinction just makes this question all the more salient. Finally, we are also dealing with a long chain of inferences here, and if the first few links don't hold up, if the diversification rate estimated estimates are not reliable, for example, this will cause further problems down the line, Kearney added. If we can't be confident about whether non-bird dinosaurs underwent a period of decline, then asking about the cause of that decline is clearly beside the point. Now, you might be asking yourself, if this is so speculative and we have someone who's very much kind of disagreeing with the conclusions, why talk about it? Well, um, you know, for one thing, I think it's good to sometimes talk about the fact that science isn't always straightforward. It can be messy and open to different interpretations. 
And also research about about dinosaurs is by its very nature prone to speculation. The fossil record is incomplete. We've never seen a living dinosaur and everything we know about them has been inferred from their sparse remains. We can continue to speculate and learn more about them while, no, while understanding that we may never know the capital T truth about their behavior, appearance, or any other aspect of these amazing extinct creatures. But again, like I was talking about before, I think it's more interesting to figure out what we can know rather than to simply leave it as a mystery. And so, you know, there will always be mysteries about dinosaurs. We can never know with 100% certainty what they looked like, what they did. We have a very, there have been a few studies on a few dinosaurs about how they might have made vocalizations, but for the vast majority of dinosaurs, we have no idea if they could vocalize, if they could vocalize, what it would have sounded like. There's all sorts of things that we'll never know about dinosaurs, but there's all sorts of things that we can know about dinosaurs. And I think that's pretty cool. Okay, we are going to switch gears completely uh, at this point and talk about something that is a big thing for me, actually. Um, when I was reading this, I was like, ah, oh, this is totally about me. Um, and so this is a story about periodolia, or seeing faces in otherwise random patterns. Well, not necessarily random patterns, but seeing faces in things that are not human faces. Uh, my brain is highly attuned to periodolia, and I find myself seeing faces and figures everywhere, even when other people literally think I'm seeing things. Um, I was uh, talking to my boyfriend the other day and I saw something that looked like something and it took me like five minutes to describe exactly what I was seeing in order to get him to be able to see it. <laughs> but my brain immediately snapped right to it. And so a new study by researchers at the University of Sydney have found that the brain processes these false positive faces in the same way as they do faces of other real human beings and processes our perception of their emotional states in the same way as well. The team suggests that this may have evolved in order for humans to be able to quickly assess whether someone was a friend or enemy. The new study is published in the journal Proceedings of the Royal Society B. Um, which is still one of my favorite journal titles. Um, it's just slightly random enough to be fun. Lead author David Alace told The Guardian, We are such a sophisticated social species and face recognition is very important. You need to recognize who it is. Is it family? Is it a friend or foe? What are their intentions and emotions? Faces are detected incredibly fast. The brain seems to do this using a kind of template. A kind of template matching procedure. So if it sees an object that appears to have two eyes above a nose and a, above a mouth, then it goes, oh, I'm seeing a face. It's a bit fast and loose and sometimes it makes mistakes. So something that resembles a face will often trigger this template match. And so previous research by Elise showed that perceptions of face identity as well as attractiveness is biased toward recently seen faces. Elias and his colleagues designed a binary task that mimicked swipe apps that ask you to swipe left or right in order to designate a person as attractive or unattractive. 
they found that many attributes, including orientation, facial expressions, and attractiveness, and even perceived slimness of a profile, was systematically biased toward recent past experience. Next, Elise worked with the team to test this same effect on works of art. They found similar results. Subjects did not evaluate works of art on their own merit, but rather in comparison with other recently viewed works. So if you looked at something that was kind of jarring, and then you looked at something that was very classically beautiful, you would then rate that classically beautiful uh, art more highly because it was uh, in juxtaposition to something that you had seen that wasn't as, you know, classically beautiful. Um, and so the next step was to examine the specific brain mechanisms behind how we process social information from others' faces. The phenomena of periodolia seemed related to him. A striking feature of these objects is that they not only look like faces, but can even convey a sense of personality or social meaning. For example, the windows of a house might feel like two eyes watching you, and a capsicum might have a happy look on its face. And so um, that's just a pepper. Um, <laughs> and uh, in case you don't know, I feel like everybody knows, but I just always like to make sure we're all on the same page. So if you've ever cut a pepper in half, like a green pepper, a green bell pepper, you can see sometimes it'll look like it has a face. Um, it's this perception of emotion that is interesting neurologically. Pattern recognition itself, seeing features common to all human faces like eyes, nose, and a mouth, is a basic idea. But when you add social cues, that's where it gets interesting. Alay's new paper has a small sample size, just 17 university students, which we always want to talk about, you know, um, there's only so much you can extrapolate from small sample sizes like this, but it is interesting. The subjects were primed with practice trials of eight real and eight periodolia images. In the actual trial, they were given 40 of each type of image and asked to, se to select the expression of the face from a uh, scale of angry to happy. The, place the faces were placed into four categories, high and low angry and high and low happy. During the trials, the subjects were briefly shown an image and then asked to rate it on this happy, angry scale. The first test was meant to challenge the serial effect. Subjects completed a sequence of 320 trials, with each image showing, shown eight times in random order. Half the subjects were shown the real face first, and half the periodolia images first. In the second experiment, the faces and periodolia images were randomized. What we found was that actually these pareidolia images are processed by the same mechanism that would normally process emotion in a real face, Elise explained. You are somehow unable to totally turn off that face response, an emotion response, and see it as an object. It remains simultaneously an object and a face. They found that no matter the order, subjects were able to rate the facial expressions of pareidolia images. They also showed the same serial dependency bias. And interestingly, in the second experiment, the dependency was more pronounced when the subjects saw the periodolia images first. The researchers conclude that this means that there is an underlying mechanism between the two. Thus, 
expression processing is not tightly bound to human facial features. They wrote, this crossover condition is important as it shows the same underlying facial expression process is involved regardless of image type, said Elise. This means that seeing faces in clouds is more than a child's fantasy. When objects look compellingly face-like, it is more than an interpretation. They really are driving your brain's face detection network. And that scowl or smile, that's your brain's facial expression system at work. For the brain, fake or real, faces are all processed the same way. So I think that's really, really interesting um, to be able to know that your brain is just completely tuned to see faces places. And so, you know, when you see something in the clouds or if you look at it, if you look at buildings, uh, a lot of the images that they showed were buildings that have, you know, kind of a little arch uh, under some windows that makes it look like, you know, a face and a, makes it look like eyes and a nose. Um, and so it's just, it's absolutely a product of this need to be able to see other people and to be able to read other people. And our brains just kind of do that in overdrive. <laughs> and so it leads us to seeing uh, faces in just about everything. <laughs> okay. Um, so let's move on again to something completely different. Um, and we're going to talk about a weird new kind of ice. Um, I know, completely different. <laughs> Researchers have created a type of ice that is flexible and elastic. The team who published their work in the journal Science formed thin threads of ice just a fraction of a width of a human hair. Um, and I think it's funny, uh, pretty much uh, all of the time people will compare uh, whatever the thing is that they're talking about to the width of a human hair. Um, and I think that's just, it's a funny thing. Um, you know, this is the second time just tonight that I am referencing uh, something that is a fraction of the width of a human hair. Um, and so, I mean, I guess it makes sense because most people have hair. Um, and if they don't have hair, they probably had hair at some point. And so it's kind of an easy yardstick, but it is always funny to me that uh, the width of a human hair is like, so common when it comes to trying to compare things. Um, you know, those other things like football fields, you know, it's like, um, that's another big one that people use a lot. I just think that's an interesting, uh, complete and utter aside. <laughs> Let's talk about, uh, this ice. Lead study author, Limin Tong, a physicist at Zhejiang University in China, was inspired by working with glass. While some forms of glass are brittle, long, thin pieces of glass, like fiber optic strands, are flexible. And so the team wanted to see if the same could be said for ice. And so they created the microfibers of ice by sending water vapor into a small chamber cooled to negative 58 degrees Fahrenheit, and then introduced a tungsten needle charged with 2,000 volts of electricity. The electrical field around the needle attracts the water molecules and then crystallized the water molecules at the tip of the needle in a thread-like shape. 
the temperature in the chamber was then lowered to negative 94 degrees and then to negative 238 degrees Fahrenheit. Experiments on the microfibers found that they were far more elastic than any other known forms of water ice. Previously, the largest elastic strain experimentally observed in ice was about 0.3%, but now we have 10.9% in ice microfibers, much more bendy than any ice before, noted Tong. The theoretical limit for the elastic strain of water ice is between 14 and 16.2%. The microfibers were able to almost be bent into a complete circle without breaking and sprung back to their original shape when the pressure was released. The researchers think that the ice is forming with almost a flawless arrangement of ice crystals. The atoms are ordered like honeycombs, Dr. Tong said. Normal ice forms with cracks, holes, and imperfectly aligned ice crystals, which reduce the ability of the ice to be elastic rather than brittle. Bending the strands also causes them to compress into a denser form of ice, which would also help guard against breaking. The ice fibers are also excellent at transmitting light along the length of the fiber, much like uh, fiber optic glass. And so the researchers actually suggest that this ice might be useful in studying how ice changes from one form to another. And the researchers also suggest that the microfibers could one day be used to study air quality. Particulates in the air, such as soot and metals, often stick to bits of ice in the atmosphere. This changes how the ice absorbs and reflects light. By building a microfiber from polluted ice and studying how light propagates through it, it might help to better understand the amount and types of pollution in a region. So that's pretty interesting. Um, <laughs> I thought that was a uh, pretty ingenious idea. And also just to be able to see ice bending like that is super weird. Um, you know, the, the microfibers, they are micro there. You can sort of barely see them um, between the researcher's finger. I didn't put a link to uh, that picture. I did put a link um, on the website to a flyover of the CERN Abbey um, or the CERN Abbess uh, giant. If you want to go um, to evidence-based errata, there is a uh, National Heritage uh, Trust video there, a drone. Um, there's some drone footage and there's some interviews with the um, archaeologists that I thought was pretty cool. Um, but that's all the time we have for tonight. Uh, you have been listening to Evidence-Based Radio, and I hope you have a good week. Good night. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.